Listener Production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> In this episode, we have the honour of talking to somebody, Jane, you and I know very well, Elizabeth Broderick. Liz, of course, was Sex Discrimination Commissioner in Australia for many years until end of 2015. These days, she has a role as a UN independent expert on discrimination against women and girls. And that means she's travelling the world looking at some of the extraordinary issues that women are facing. And it's remarkable to see that she's taking some of the ideas that she had in her position in Australia, working for the Human Rights Commission, and exporting them to other countries internationally to raise the status of women and girls, because she was an incredibly effective sex discrimination commissioner during her tenure here and had a lot to do with the armed forces, with the police, with male champions of change, famously. And it's just fantastic to see her take that knowledge gained here and make a difference to women and girls in countries all over the world. I mean, well done us in a weird kind of a way, but particularly well done her. I quote her constantly. One particular line she always used, which I thought was so brilliant, is that sexism and misogyny are like asbestos. They're in the walls and we all just breathe them in. Such a great way of putting it. She's an incredibly effective operator. Yep. Fantastic to have her here. Welcome, Liz. So wonderful to be here with my dear friends, Catherine and Jane. It's, you know, it's a great privilege to be chatting about these things that we've chatted for years about anyway. We're in heated <laughs> agreement, I'd like to say. Yes. <laughs> but always great to have a conversation on gender equality and, and the incredible work that women are doing. So tell us about the role at the UN. Yeah, well, so the UN role, I was appointed as one of the UN's independent experts or what they call special rapporteurs on women's rights across the world. So that's about women and girls across the world. There's five independent experts to the UN on women's rights. I come from what they call Western Europe and other grouping. So I represent all the developed nations of the world. But having said that, most of my work is also in the developing world as well. So that could see me in any point of time going from places like Chad and Honduras, which are probably not on the holiday list and I'm not recommending them right now, Mm. to Geneva three times a year at least, New York a couple of times a year. And then I undertake country missions. So I've just come back from Greece two weeks ago. And that was really to look at the status of women and girls in Greece, not just in, in business or workplaces, but how they were doing in the refugee camps, in the prisons. And I talk from everyone from the ministers and presidents of the nation all the way through to the human rights activists, private sector, unions. So I try to get as broad a picture as I possibly can and then I make recommendations to that nation, to the government of that nation, as to how they can lift the status of women. I also report to UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. So it's a, such a fascinating role. It can sometimes be a deeply sad mm. part, of, part of the work, but... You know, I have to say, even a nation like Greece, which is doing very in difficult financial and economic times, there's, you know, when you're working together with people who want to create change, who want to build gender equal businesses, nations or world, that's a really energising place to be. Mm. Liz, can I ask you, your tenure as Sex Discrimination Commissioner, there were many interesting progressive things that you were able to implement. 
What of them? Are there a few, for example, that you might use when you are in these other countries or use as examples that they can they can emulate? Absolutely. I mean, one of the examples there, of course, is the Male Champions of Change strategy. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Pretty much every nation in the world, men hold power. I mean, we know yeah. that, but it, I, I don't know a nation... Um, well, not one that I've been to where that isn't the case. So I'm often asked, look, how can we get men with power to step up and really lead on gender equality? Not speak for us, not try and save us, but step up as equal partners in change. And I have to say the Male Champions Change strategy is unique in any nation in the world. There's a lot of strategies around men, good strategies around men and care, men and domestic violence. But there's no real strategy around men and power. So it's one of the strategies that we've been able to talk about how to engage powerful, decent men, how to not just get them to talk about it. Because to be honest, the time for talking is well over. Mm. This is about strong, tangible action. It's about courage. It's about equal partners with women in this journey. So that's a strategy that many nations are interested in at the moment because we are at a particular point in time in the history of the world. We're seeing enormous backlash across so many nations on women's rights. I mean, women's rights are often seen as progressive Western values rather than universal human rights. And we're seeing more and more countries, and I'm talking through Europe as well. I mean, we have Hungary, Poland, you know, even parts of Spain and Italy and countries that you wouldn't imagine where there's a real pushback on women's rights and gender equality. Mm. The U.S., Absolutely. I mean, just in the, um, my most recent visit to New York, um, one of the NGOs there, I met with delegations of NGOs, they were telling me that in the US over the last 12 months, there's been 63 new pieces of law introduced, most of it state-based law, which basically curtailing women's reproductive rights. So eliminating their right to seek an abortion, to have a safe abortion. This is in the US, mm-hmm. 63 new pieces of law. So um, a lot of the unlikely nations are now starting to push back on gender equality and women's rights. Mm. Liz, I'm sure I read recently that um, one of the male champions of chains groups set up internationally was the IT sector, which is fascinating. So how did that get off the ground? We've got a number of international groups now. We've got one in Pakistan, which is fantastic. We launched last week in India um, with a group, but also the Global Tech Group, which we launched at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Um, So that is to bring together the CEOs of some of the largest technology companies in the world, but also some of the startups. So to bring new thinking, but to look at how we can leverage the technology for gender equality, because what we're seeing now, particularly with the changing world of work, so we're seeing the rise of ubiquitous nature of technology, which can be in advance for women's rights, but also can be very detrimental to women's rights. And what we're trying to do is build engagement with the men who lead and have huge power in the world today. I mean, in some cases, more power than many leaders of nation states have. So to help them see that unless we're building a world and we're building technology, which is inclusive of women, not only are we missing out on a large opportunity, but we could put women in a worse situation, a more unequal world than they've than we currently inhabit. Yeah. You spoke before about a backlash that we're seeing all over the place, and it strikes me that it's almost inevitable that as women gain power, mm. and I'm really so pleased to use that word because it's almost like everybody's allergic to the word power, as women gain power, it's almost inevitable that there will be uh, a kind of panic 
mm-hmm. attached to that and an attempt, a desperate attempt to claw it back. How do you, I mean, it can, that can be very disheartening mm-hmm. in that every step forward is accompanied by, you know, an equal and opposite reaction against your step forward. How, how do you deal with that as a person who's going around trying to move things forward all the time? Yeah, I think you just have to step into that because you right, for it is often comes from a place of fear. For you as a woman to have power, me as a man has to give it up. And look, there is, if there's a better sharing of power across the world, yeah, there will be situations where power needs to be shared to a much greater extent so that we all lift, we all benefit. So it's helping people see that and it's also helping them see that it's not really a zero-sum game Mm. where women win and men lose. Actually, when women hold power equally with men, everyone benefits Mm. and that's the real challenge. So I think at least taking powerful, decent men on a journey of gender equality and helping them see firstly the complexity of it. So there is no one single thing that you can do. There needs to be a range of things. But getting people to, and particularly decent men to have a heart connection to it. I mean, for many of them, they'll have it in their head. They will have seen all the data. But at the end of the day, none of that will make them step up to strong and purposeful action. What will make them step up, I think, is understanding the human face of inequality. So the deep harm that so many women suffer, women in their own lives, if they'd kind of open their eyes and have a bit of a look around, but also in to the extent they're leaders of nations, leaders of corporations. I mean, this inequality and harm to women is happening on their watch. Yeah. And is that where they want to be? So that's that's what I try to do, even when I'm with a nation like Greece and I'm making certain recommendations I love to bring the voices of women into all my reports because I can put the data in front of policymakers till I'm blue in the face. It's actually the beautiful words of women who are living the inequality. That's what's going to make them shift. So that's what I try to do. I try and take the personal directly to the heart of power. And that's what I'm determined to do in my UN role as well, which is quite, the UN's quite a formal and bureaucratic organisation. And my suggestions around some of these things are not always met with great enthusiasm. (laughs) But you know what? I have immense power in that role and I will use it. Mm. And I'll use it in a way that builds and engages, not divides, but there are times when don't mess with me because I I will get the change I want to see in the world. And I want to ask you one other question. Do you find sometimes, I mean, it's interesting the US is slipping backwards so quickly. Mm. The US is really a soft theocracy and, you know, you can see across the world that theocracies Mm. generally are really bad for women Mm. and it's amazing to see a country like Ireland that used to be Mm. a theocracy and Mm. now is no longer a theocracy, Mm. which has become such a beacon of hope really for both LGBTQI and, of course, with the repeal of Amendment 8 abortion rights. Do you think that there is a problem with very traditional patriarchal religion and fighting for women's rights? Absolutely. Where religion is a core part of government, where there's really not the separation of power that we would like to see in a a mature democracy, that is a very problematic environment for women. And what we're seeing is that there's a rise of extremism and fundamentalism, particularly religious fundamentalism. So this is not about good people of faith. I meet the most incredible women of faith and men of 
faith as I travel around, but I'm also seeing a polarization in many churches move to the extremities. And once that happens, you see women and policies that put women back in traditional roles. And indeed, they put men back in traditional roles as well. So what the one of the major arguments that we're having at the minute in the Human Rights Council in Geneva is where we have a lot of pushback that women's empowerment, gender equality is actually damaging the family. It's damaging oh, the family. That's the old it's, argument, yeah, the isn't old it? One. It's damaging the state. It's damaging the church. It's damaging all the institutions that we used to love, admire and trust. And so a lot of our work will be to convince different nation states, their policymakers, that actually gender equality is protective of a family. So it's not about destroying the family. Let's take the case of a family where the husband or the wife or in um, same-sex families, the people who bring in the money, the partners, one of them loses their job. If the other actually has um, employment and income, that's protective of a family. So there's so many ways that women's empowerment in family is protective of a family. And not only that, when women work, we know their children do better. They do better educationally. They do better from less poverty, all those types of things. So a lot of our arguments would be to show that gender equality actually is protective of a family and let's move out from that. It's about building a strong economy. If you have half of your nation's population sitting on one side, you will never have a strong economy. And that's part of what my work in Greece was about is helping the government in terms of policies to engage more and more women in the labour market in a way of rebuilding a strong economy. And of course, that was the exact objection to women getting the vote, as I recall, a century or so ago, the rending of the social fabric, you know, family. Families collapsing and so on. Every step forward has been met with the same sorts of objections. Liz, many years ago, you said to me that you were a late onset feminist. I think it was a great expression. Tell us a little bit about that awakening for you. It's probably because I always grew up in a gender equal family. I just reflecting back now. I never probably noticed that. That's just the way it was. So an identical twin sister and a younger sister, you know, I would classify her as an activist. She wouldn't have described herself as that, but she was absolutely, you know, don't mess with my mum on, you know, where women can sit and be in the world. And then my dad, who was beautiful, always engaged in the domestic work. He was a physician, but um, always engaged in all the work around the house. And there wasn't really women's work and men's work. There was just work and everyone chipped in. That was the idea. And then growing up in the family-run businesses. So my mum was a physio, my dad a physician, but they came together to set up medical practices and bring new technology to Australia, which was nuclear medicine, essentially. So there it was also sitting with a lot of the patients, just hearing their stories, people who were really vulnerable at critical points in their life. And I think that's what's given me a deep kind of interest in human rights and a deep desire to make the world better, whatever that means. So, and then I remember probably the first time I really ever kind of realised that women and men in some spheres may not be equal, which was a wild awakening to me, was I remember taking one of the patients from my mum and dad's surgery. So they had a surgery about three kilometres from the hospital. And my twin sister and I, when we got our licence, my mum and dad decided it was a great idea that we would pick up the patients, bring them to the surgery for their training. (laughs) 
<laughs> We'd be the courier service for their imaging and then drop them back at the hospital. I mean, why they thought we at age 17, you know, so bad drivers. So I remember picking up this woman from the hospital and she had a suspected pulmonary embolus, you know, so she had all the drips and everything in, a potential clot in the lung. So she was coming to see whether that was in fact a thing. And I put her in the car and we're driving along and we're having a nice conversation. And she says to me, oh, do you have any brothers or sisters? And I said, yeah, actually, I've got two sisters, a twin and a younger sister. She just looked at me. She said, oh, my God. She said, your poor father. Mm. No one to carry on the family name. Mm. But, I mean, seriously, I couldn't believe there were people in the world that still thought like this. And I think that was probably a pivotal moment for me, which then started. And then, of course, when I had my own kids and I saw that, my career wouldn't necessarily develop in the same way as my husband's. It's like, well, this is absolutely a thing and I'm someone, I've got power, I've got to do something about this. How, actually, Holly Kramer, the mm, director, yeah. talks about something Kirsten Ferguson, my co-author, right. wrote about in our book, Womankind, the four stages mm. of awareness for some women. I have to say, and I suspect Jane's the same, I didn't need the four stages. I think something happened in the womb with me. So it was much earlier for me. It was who your mother was, I think. I think it, pos- <laughs> it possibly was. But basically they go from, it's kind of like the four stages of grief, it's sort of denial. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is no blindness. problem. There is no problem. Then through to maybe there is something going on here mm-hmm. through to advocacy. You yeah. know, it's right through those four stages. And I think yeah. it's very familiar to a lot of women. And it often is around childbearing. You're right. I think that's when we kind of realise that actually, you know, we had a brain and it was not delivered with the baby. Oh, that's a surprise. Um, And then we start start going in a totally different direction to our partners or, you know, the men in our life. Well, what we see, I mean, I think Jan Fran's done one of her wonderful exposés of this, that when women have children, become mothers, their uh, income just falls off a cliff, it just Mm, drops mm. away. When men become fathers, it rockets up. Men who don't have children, it just stays steady. Women who don't have children stay steady. It's fathers Mm. who get this huge benefit. Mm. It's a parenting bonus bonus for men. For men and a parenting death penalty for women. Astonishing. It is astonishing and it's, you know, it doesn't make sense in any framing, whether it's an economic framing, a human rights framing, a, you know, Whatever. It just no. doesn't make well, sense. Well, and it doesn't make sense in terms of future, being able yeah. to maintain yourself over your whole life. Yeah. The deficits that you're dealing with in the third world or in developing yeah. countries is often extreme. And as you say, it must be hard to keep seeing that. But even here, we have this enormous superannuation gap, for exact example, the fastest mm. growing group amongst the homeless women over 55. That's exactly right. I mean, how deeply distressing. And is that because women sat on their backside their whole life? No, <laughs> no. absolutely. Absolutely not. The reverse. The exact reverse. In fact, when I started looking at that issue as a sex discrimination commissioner, we did a major piece of work on instead of a accumulation of wealth as in super, it was accumulation of poverty in a sense. But we looked at a, a woman's life cycle and all the points where she would be disadvantaged economically. And we started saying, re kind of framing that gender gap in retirement savings by asking the question, is poverty to be the reward for a lifetime spent caring? Because I think if you ask most decent people, how important is care, the care that you received as a child and an adult, the care you give, most people would say, look, that's the most important thing Mm. in terms of 
you know, shaping a nation which socially cohesive, which is compassionate and caring, and not only that, economically viable as well. But we still have in place a regime, and I'd say that superannuation is part of this picture, which disproportionately disadvantages women. Yeah. So there's really, there's very little gender lens built into it. And I think in most nations I go to, I start by looking at some of the tax, the treatment, the tax system, because it appears gender neutral on its face, but it absolutely reproduces disadvantage in most nations for women. Liz, um, the Me Too movement, which has been such an extraordinary thing and we've discussed with with quite a lot of the people that we've interviewed for this series. What what did you make of it and what do you think of its impact? Yeah, I think Me Too has been such an important movement globally. I look at it as also through, say, the Muslim world, um, particularly women who've been sexually harassed, sexually assaulted on their way to Mecca. Um, I look at it through South America, Latin America. Just it, it, I look at it in all its incarnations. And the fact is that it's a movement that's gone viral, truly viral. I think that is incredible. And not only that, that that is so necessary. I suppose it started really by about sexual violence and yeah. that's what's the genesis. And we could all say, well, me too. The parts where it's been high profile is high-profile white men largely. So we looked at Hollywood first, you know, Harvey Weinstein and whatever, and then even here in Australia, it was those men. And where are the Me Too women that I meet everywhere who are domestic workers? So they, I mean, you know, when I hear the stories of domestic workers who are, even if I bring it back here to Australia, because I was about to say rag pickers and others, that's the great thing about my work. I, I, I connect with so many different people, women in the informal sector as well as the formal sector all across the world. But if I if I even bring it back here to Australia, what about those women that are in retail, that are in hospitality and then cleaning jobs that are in less paid? I don't necessarily call them low skilled. I don't like that as a as a way of describing, but less powerful in a sense roles. Where how has the Me Too movement really liberated and brought forth their stories. And that's one of the things I don't think it's necessarily done. We have heard quite a lot from people who've worked as wait staff right. about that kind of thing. I've been following that a bit yeah. on Twitter, that, that that has come out. And But I agree with you. The thing I think is interesting is I suspect, and I think Me Too acknowledges this, that it's not just now that we've seen this. Mm. When you talk about domestic workers, I just think to myself, what must it have been like mm. to be a pretty scullery maid in a manor house in any part of Mm. Europe or even Australia in the 1850s or 60s, you were so vulnerable Mm. with no defence at all from the men in that household. And I think what Me Too is starting to do is because most of the millions of women who told those stories were not celebrities in Hollywood. They were ordinary women talking about their ordinary lives. It's gotten hijacked a bit by the media, Mm. I suspect, because they were interested in the glamour end of it rather Mm. than the, you know, 
everyday working woman's end of it, which is exactly what you've just been mm. talking about. But you're absolutely right on that, Jane. And I think the thing that Me Too's done is it's given us the language to talk about these mm. things more. Now that matters. Mm. And I just see, you know, even I was meeting with a whole group of male champions change yesterday. They're talking about it, actively talking about it. Some of them still a bit kind of particularly in the grey areas are not really you know, really clear about it. But I think that's great mm. because reach out, ask all the women in your lives, where has it been your Me Too movements and what could have I done differently? So I think it spurned a whole global conversation, which I hope does not stop. I'm loving seeing um, the Me Too movement and Tracy Spicer and Tarana Burke mm. as the uh, Peace Prize winners because there can be no peace in the world when there's violence um, in workplaces, in a sense. I mean, I believe that peace is not just about the absence of war. It's about respectful and dignified treatment of human beings all across well, the what, world. One of the reasons perhaps Australia has one of the most sex-segregated workforces in the world is because the male-dominated industries were actively hostile to women. Mm. We've heard stories, say, for example, the surgeons and, you know, all of that that came out, um, and women made a decision, I will go for love lower pay to be in a female-dominated profession, which is more lowly paid across the board, mm. because it's safer. I don't feel face that I'm facing hostility. But then again, it's lower paid. Mm. So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mm. Well, that's right. But one of the other th important things is it's made visible something that's become, uh, that is clearly routine. And so women hidden. like yeah. us, when mm. we were growing up, we were told we were making it up. It mm. wasn't happening. And one of the things I've observed from men, certainly powerful men in the business sector, is genuine shock. Mm. I, I actually oh, yes, think intelligent men who just kind of had no idea. And mm. that's because they had to, without even meaning to, dismissed it. It mm. wasn't. Mm. It happened occasionally in an extreme example. So I think that's been a real circuit breaker. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And what I say to all the men that I meet is you must go out and intentionally look for it. Because mm. what I know as the keeper of the data for Australia when I was the Sex Discrimination Commissioner is that the rates of reporting are very, very low. Yes. It's deeply hidden. If you're a leader and you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not happening. It yeah. absolutely is. I can tell you it is. And the scariest moments I have is when I turn up to an organisation or whatever it is and they say, oh, and we haven't had any sexual harassment complaints. It's like, oh, error, there's a problem here. Yeah. It says not psychologically safe to speak. So you have to intentionally go out and absolutely look for it. And given that it happens on the continuum, it's the demeaning attitudes that yeah. are held about women and this everyday sexism, I call it, that's where it needs to be mm. cut off at that point. And, and it, what is Me Too has also done is it's given women permission to express their anger. Mm. Yeah. Because prior to that, the angry woman or the angry black woman, even mm. worse, was such a, you know, women were terrified of demonstrating mm. how angry they felt. And yet if you're being groped in your workplace, you have every right to be bloody furious about yeah, it. Yeah, but and the yeah. irony is the women are constantly told, why don't you speak up? Oh, yes. Mm. How many times have I heard that over the years from <laughs> privileged know. males who but say, well, do. there was something really wrong. Um, Liz, I but can I just add to that because yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. And it's that emotion, I think, that helps me in the very mm. difficult nations because I am the keeper of thousands of stories of sexual assault, sexual harassment and the impact and just seeing how that's played out in a deeply human way. And it's that that gives me the fuel to have the courage to stand up to some of these nation leaders and others. So, you know, it's when I speak, it's not Liz Broderick, it's Liz Broderick armed by thousands of women's stories of 
inequality and sexual harassment and assault. So do not mess with me. I will get change. Um, and that's how I'll do it. How do you personally get treated by some of those leaders you have to stand up to? I mean, it's interesting because, as you know, I work across the military mm. and police and all the command and controls uh, as well. Um, look, I have some some of the most robust conversations I've probably ever had in my life since I've really stepped up my advocacy on this. And that's what I'd say is one of the gifts of those institutions and some of the global, you know, the global work is that... I've come to a point where I know it doesn't matter where I find myself. It might be speaking to, a, you know, well, just recently in Greece, uh, many ministerial people, the Greek government with my recommendations, whether it's there or whether it's sitting on top of a missile, running a focus group or whatever, I know I will be okay because I have everything that I need right here, right now to create change in the world in this area. And I think I've come to that place because the gift of having those conversations is that I now, when appropriate, can serve it back in in a very forthright and always deeply respectful, always deeply respectful because I'm in human rights and dignity and respect must lie at the heart of every interaction. So it will be respectful, but you will be in absolutely no doubt about, you know, my views, my advice, my this, my that. And so that's really how I keep safe. Fantastic. I just want to ask you, um, probably not for a quick answer, but in a way, just a snapshot. You would have been asked for your advice by so many women over the years, younger women, Mm. but others as well. And I just wonder, has the nature of that changed? Because I'm sure that the inquiries are often about given your depth of experience, how do I cope? How do I get ahead? How do I survive in in some of these environments? What is the nature of that these days, do you think? Yeah, you're right. I'm often, how do I survive? And one of the things I think that's shifted, which I think is fantastic, is our conversation about self-care and collective care. So I'm doing a lot of speaking and work on that now and helping young women see, and and all of us, that if we don't put self-care at the top of the list, the women's movement and what we're trying to achieve will never be what we aspire it to be because the women's movement's made up of every one of us. And if we're not both mentally and physically well, then we won't be able to create change in the world. So it's the human rights defenders, actually, the beautiful women's human rights defenders all across the world, many of whom are at threat of being disappeared, being tortured, imprisoned, incarcerated, executed, whatever. They've taught me that being well, both physically and mentally is the ultimate act of women's empowerment and political defiance in many nations. So I will be well. That's my first point. So that's my first point always to young women that, you know, that actually that's the most important thing. And then coming back from that is also, you know, how to stay safe in different environments. I mean, I so often meet women and I think, oh my God, if I was your mother, I'd say, get the hell out of here. And you know what? Sometimes I say that. I say, look, Mm. I know I'm not your mother or anything, but just can I say to you that, you know, you have amazing skills and whatever and the world needs you. It's calling you, but not in this role, in this place. So just helping people sometimes see realities as well. But I think mainly the other message that I'm always giving is, and once again, I met a beautiful African woman who taught me this. She said, when she was talking about how she changed the world, she said, I do what I can when I can. That's how I change the world. And I just thought it's such a simple message, but it's one that we forget. We think, oh, if we don't access this opportunity or that, if I'm not there or here, 
then I'm never going to be anyone. And, you know, I, I know as a young woman, I used to sit up and I'd see these really powerful senior women give lectures and speak and I think, oh, but I could never be like you. I'll never be like that. And it's just made me realise you don't have to be extraordinary to create change in the world. Every one of us, all of us, can create change in the world. It's just doing what you can when you can. She may think, the young girl may think, I can never be like you, but we, standing there on the stage, were once just like her. Absolutely. Thinking exactly that. Yeah. And that's the thing you want to get across. I love that you say that, you know, you have to give the advice about how to survive Mm. because I think... We sometimes feel a bit distant from that in mm. the privileged West, mm. that there are women out there who are still living terribly dangerous lives. You're right. And even more and more, Jane, because what we're seeing, and I've seen the data recently, is the number of reprisals against women's human rights defenders is the highest that it's ever been. I'm it's thinking increasing. of Saudi Arabia in particular. Well, Saudi Arabia, and one of my mandates is to write to the government of Saudi Arabia, and I have with my independent experts, we have written on a number of occasions detailing the torture and abuse that's happening to women's rights activists who wanted women to have the right to drive in Saudi, the right to attend sporting events, the right to vote, those things. Those women who led the charge there have been incarcerated. It's well documented. Um, our letters are in the public domain now, they are being imprisoned and tortured for standing up for what is essentially our basic human rights as women in the world. So, you know what, I always remind myself, and I think it's great for every Australian woman, um, wherever we sit, whatever we do, here in Australia, we have immense power. When I look at the power that we have to create change, and we're not executed for speaking out. I mean, I'm no. speaking to the two most <laughs> fantastic um, women's rights activists. No, I'd, but I'd be dead years yeah, ago. You would have been dead and so would have and I would be dead as well. But in many nations we don't, you don't have, not only are you not able to, you know, you're not educated to give you the voice and the, and the evidence base to speak, but if you do speak, the ramifications are so horrific, not just for you, but for your family that, it, you know, you really can't speak. So I just think doing all the global work has really just reinforced for me that a mature democracy, which is stable like Australia, a wealthy democracy, that we have immense power in the world. And with the US, as you say, now aligning with us on many positions, indeed, at the most recent Commission on Status of Women in New York, where I was there in March, the US voted a number of their resolutions were quite oppositional to Australia, particularly on reproductive rights and those things that we would have taken for granted as women's rights activists. So we have immense power. We are going to use it. It's incumbent on every one of us to stand up and do it in whatever sphere of influence we found ourselves, but we're going to do what we can when we can. And that's how we're going to change the world. Oh, well, aren't we lucky mm. that we have a Liz Broderick yeah, doing uh, extraordinary things? And thank you so much, Liz, for coming in and telling us about this amazing work that you've continued to do and have done over decades. And reminders that not everyone lives the kind of safe and privileged lives that we do, which doesn't mean we can't keep fighting for our own equality as yeah, well as everybody else's. Thanks for having me. Thank in. you. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Liv Proud. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.